Uh, we're continuing this series, and I'm going to begin in the beginning of Mark chapter 8. So if you have your, your Bibles with you, pull that out, Mark chapter 8, and we're going to begin with verse 1 in just a moment. But if you recall, a few weeks ago, we were in Mark chapter 6, and there was a, uh, a miracle there where Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish and, and fed a crowd of about 5,000. Well, today we're going to be looking at uh, the heading here in Mark chapter 8, verse 1, is Jesus feeds 4,000. So uh, there are some similarities between these events, and we're going to look at that and look at the differences and why, why do we see this a second time. Pastor Steve mentioned that the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was one of the miracles, one of the only miracles that appears in all four gospel accounts. And he mentioned that through this event and what we learned from that, things like God wants to work through us and God's invitations often come disguised as interruptions. And our own resources will never be enough. And we see some of those things that are are still true in this event here. Um, It speaks of God's provision. There's this multiplying. There's this large crowd. Uh, So this feeding of of the 4,000, there was another feeding? Yes, there was. And this is recorded in two Gospels. This event is not only here in Mark chapter 8, but also in Matthew chapter 15. We see this event take place. And we often see in Scripture, miracles are repeated. Jesus was routinely healing people and touching people's lives and, and many similarities, but what are the unique things that we can draw from? Last week, Pastor Steve mentioned about Jesus healing the deaf mute man. And in, not surprising to see Jesus move in that way, but he pointed out that there were some very unique things to that individual's circumstance and how that miracle took place. So what, it is, what is it about this miracle that we're about to read about that's unique? What is it that we learn from this, uh, this second event? So if you have your, your uh, Bibles with you, I'm going to begin reading in Mark chapter 8 at verse 1. It says, About this time another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, How are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Jesus asked, How much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground Then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples, who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found, too. So Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 people in the crowd that day. And Jesus sent them home home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples and crossed over to the region of Dalman... Ah, you practice that word over and over. Dalman... Wow. I'm just going to walk away from it, Pastor. (laughs) My apologies. Uh, What's unique about this miracle? Well, some things that that jump out to me right away is that this appears to be a multi-day event. Jesus said it was the third day when they had run out of food. And if you recall, in the previous 
story in, in Mark chapter 6, the, the feeding of the 5,000, that was a spontaneous one-day event. So very, very different circumstances. I'll, I'll speak to that in just a few moments. At the end of this, it says there were seven large baskets left over. And in the previous miracle, there were 12. And as I, I looked into that a little bit, the 12 baskets that were left over were a hand basket, something large enough that an individual could carry. But in this miracle, seven large baskets, these baskets were perhaps twice the size, maybe the size of a basket that was used to lower Paul as he escaped in one of, uh, one of the situations where he was being chased. So we have these seven large basketfuls left over. And Scripture very deliberately points out the difference in the size of the crowds. 5,000 in that first event, 4,000 here. And, and in both of these circumstances, they were counting only the men. In Matthew's account of this feeding of 4,000, he, he makes sure to point out that it included uh, beyond the 4,000 were the women and children. And in fact, we'll see later on in, gospel, in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, Jesus refers to these separate accounts as separate miracles. This one appears to be a standalone event as we, as we go through Scripture. Um, the previous miracle took place as an interruption. As Jesus was getting away with his disciples, a crowd noticed where he was going. When they landed uh, in their boat, the crowd was there. And it interrupted what Jesus was doing in that moment. But he ministered to the crowd throughout the day. And at the end of that, uh, he fed them before he said them on, sent them on their way. But in this instance... In, in multiple different translations, it, it opens up saying about this time or in those days or during those days. And it seems to indicate that this story is separate from what happened previous in Scripture and separate from what's going to happen continuing on in Mark chapter 8. And I think it's, it's consistent with Mark moving very succinctly, telling these, these uh, accounts to his audience generating this expectancy through the narrative of, of the gospel. So throughout this, as I was studying and praying, God, what is it here that speaks to us this morning? I see uh, several different instances where we can look at this situation and realize that there are many different aspects of our lives that we need to put in God's hands. Many things that we need to just release to God and say, God, this is in your hands. My situation, these different points that I'll cover in a moment, I need to surrender it all to you. It needs to be in your hands. The first one I want to point out is this, is that my time is in God's hands. My time is in God's hands. Verse 2, Jesus makes a point of identifying, they have been here with me for three days. Three days dedicated to being with Jesus, wanting to hear what he had to say. The men, the women, the children, out in the wilderness. Some who had traveled a, a great distance to be there. But this was, this was three days of being there with Jesus. Again, very different from the other instance where perhaps people were out doing their business. And I imagine myself, if we're out doing yard work and someone comes running through town, Jesus is going to be downtown. And the crowd all gathers spontaneously. And at the end of that event, no one was home preparing dinner. So how are we all going to get home? What are we going to eat when we get there? And Jesus performs the miracle in that moment. But this is, this is, this is a little bit different going on. This could possibly have been a planned event, some kind of an outreach that the crowd was going to gather and be there for several days. And in fact, it, it wasn't until the third day that they recognized they had run out of food. Now they had nothing left. So as I, as I 
try to digest what this situation was like, I assume that some initially brought some food. If they ran out, they had some when this all started, but now it's all gone. Jesus said that some had this long distance to travel before they got home, and I I wonder how much food did they bring? How long were they planning on being there? At what point did they realize, hey, you know what? This is still going on. We still want to hear what Jesus has said, but the food's getting short. It's running out. And you wonder, did they begin to ration? And, you know, why, why don't we make sure the kids get fed first? And, you know, whatever it took to, to ration the food out as long as it could. But here we are in the third day, and it's all gone. Nothing was left. But in that moment, the people remained. Three days in the wilderness, they've run out of food, but no one's going to move until Jesus releases them. They were setting aside their time and saying, what's happening here in this moment is important. And they totally surrendered their time to God in this moment. And I think about the church today, at least here in America, we're very driven by time. We were wondering what's going to happen next, what's in the next moment. We're, we're following trends at times and very driven by the clock. As I was preparing this, I ran across a story, uh, Christian satire. Basically, Christians kind of poking fun at Christians, so we maybe recognize some things that we're doing. And the story that came across completely made up, but it proves a point. The headline was this. Half of a local congregation died on Sunday because the pastor went 15 minutes longer than scheduled for his sermon, causing the people to die of hunger. The other half of the crowd managed to escape as soon as it was over and flooded the local restaurants to obtain sustenance to get them through. And why didn't they notice that as pastor went one, two, three minutes beyond the end of his normal stopping time, couldn't he hear the hunger in the people's stomachs? Didn't he see them pulling out their their phones and looking at the time? And it was a great tragedy. But it, it makes a point. We are very driven by time. We, we see it all around us. So when I, I look at this and I say, well, with respect to time and God, what's limiting me? What do I, what's my cutoff point? And maybe it is hunger. Did you pack a lunch this morning? Did you come this morning saying, if God doesn't move, I'm going to be here for a while? And, and, and there was that second offering, and, and it's a guest speaker. Who knows how long he's going to go? It's a good thing I packed a lunch today. Any lunches in the crowd? Because we might have to share here in a few minutes. Probably not. Maybe you're limited. You say, I'm good till 1 o'clock because that's when kickoff is. There's a game on, and I'm not going to miss that. Is, that. is that your time restriction when it comes to your relationship with God? And, and, and I make light of this. In reality, there are real needs that we have to attend to, real, real schedules that we have to keep. And I don't, I don't want to set that aside, but I examine the Scripture, and then I examine my own life, and I say, what do I need to learn from this? And I ask the question, do we ever just linger until God dismisses us? whether it's a Sunday morning or a Tuesday morning in your devotions, do you ever position yourself to say, you know what, God, I'm just going to remain. I'm just going to linger. I'm going to surrender my schedule. I'm going to surrender my time until you release me. Maybe it's just me. A question, do I do that enough? Do I open up space? Do I surrender it to God? For those who persevered in this gospel account, they saw the miracle, though. Those who stayed beyond the running out of the food through whatever the situation was, out in the wilderness, a long trip ahead, but those who remained witnessed the miracle. In, in a, a study Bible that I have, it makes this comment in reference to this 
uh, gospel account. It says this true zeal makes nothing of hardships in the way of duty. True zeal makes nothing of hardships in the way of duty. And I think about those who are truly passionate will set aside any type of hardship to get what it is that God has in store for them. Last several weeks, a couple of stories have come across my desk or I've seen in the news about individuals who went above and beyond, who sacrificed and saw great reward because of that. And one of them is an individual from World War II named Desmond Doss. And I don't know if you've ever heard the name Desmond Doss, but there's actually a movie coming out very soon about his life. He was a follower of Christ. But he also recognized that with the conflict that was happening in World War II that he had some part to play in this. But his faith put him in a position where he said, I will not pick up a weapon and I will not kill anybody, but I have to serve. And this was the conflict that he had. And he he went into the army in this position. I want to serve, I want to do my part, but I will not carry a weapon and I will not kill anybody. And he received tremendous persecution through his training, his boot camp experience. They tried to force him out. They, they created him as, a, as a, an outlier, someone that couldn't be trusted. If he's not going to defend you, you can't trust him. But he persevered and joined a unit as a medic. He said, I will do my part as a medic. And Desmond Doss was there at the Battle of Okinawa. And at the end of the battle on one day, they had not claimed the hill that they were going after, but night came and the conflict was done and everyone went to bed. When they got up the next morning, that division looked in their camp and there were over 70 wounded American soldiers that weren't there the night before. Desmond Doss climbed up a ridge, crawled around the battlefield, identified living soldiers who had been wounded, dragged them back to the ridge, lowered them by hand one at a time down the ridge, climbed down the ridge, secured them, went back for another one all night long. And that was just one story of of him going to great lengths, setting aside whatever it was to do what God was calling him to do. Desmond Doss ended up receiving the highest award that the military gives, the Congressional Medal of Honor, as a conscientious objector wanting to serve, wanting to do it, going beyond uh, the limits that maybe others would say and say, you know what, I'm going to do it. True zeal makes nothing of hardship in the way of duty. The audience with Jesus on the third day, at the end of it all, they were fed. They were fed spiritually and physically. They were willing to linger beyond their comfort zone, willing to give up their time. And so how am I challenged by this? Well, I ask a question of myself, what do I miss when I check out early? If I cut my devotions short, what am I missing out on? If my prayer time isn't as long as it probably could be or should be, am I missing a breakthrough? Do I walk away from the altar before that breakthrough actually happens? What comforts do I allow to trump my time with God? And maybe it is the clock. Time is valuable, I recognize that. And you give it on Sunday morning. You've all demonstrated that this part of the weekend is dedicated and I set this aside and I give this to God and that's, that's a great thing. Many of you come out for prayer on Wednesday night or are in a campus Bible study or you're attending a youth service. That's a great thing. But just looking at our schedule, is there, is there something more that God's calling me to do to maybe just take an hour and stand on a street corner and hand someone a cup of coffee and say, hey, you know what? I would love for you to come and hear what God's doing in the lives uh, of the people at our church. 
Could you take, take a half an hour on a Saturday and pick up a basket of food and take it to a family in need and say, hey, you know, we want to bless you. We want to meet your, your need right where you're at. We want to pray with you. And, and, and hear me, more isn't necessarily the answer. It isn't just about more time, but an honest evaluation of our situation may challenge some of us. Do I trust God enough to put my time in his hands? And for the people in this account, the sacrifice of their time was greatly rewarded. I want to make sure I'm putting my time in God's hands. Another, another area of my life that I can see in here and I can say, okay, I want to set this aside, and this is my needs. My needs are in God's hands. The things that I have to have, I trust that God will provide. And again, referring back to verse 2, Jesus makes the comment, and they had nothing left. Jesus recognizes the needs that we have. In the, in the Mark chapter 6 account of the feeding of the 5,000, it was the disciples who approached Jesus and said, you know what, they're hungry, and I don't think they brought anything. You better send them home. And out of that, we learn a lesson about trust and how the disciples are supposed to interact and, and these sorts of things. But in this instant, G, instance, Jesus is identifying, I recognize the need that they have. My needs are, are, are in his hands. He, he sees the needs of the crowd. Now, oftentimes, the disciples will get a bad reputation. Maybe they should have recognized, don't you remember, he, just two chapters ago, he fed a large crowd. And perhaps we could say they, they were exercising doubt or they just failed to remember. And what is it with these knuckleheads? And we give them kind of a bad rap. But the reality is there are lessons that take me more than one instance to learn. Sometimes I have to be reminded of the same things over and over. And there are probably a couple of people in the room who could... Uh, expound on that, but what I see, though, as I, as I dug into a little bit about what the disciples were saying in this moment, the disciples said, where are we going to find enough? And another translation will say, how are we going to supply these people? And in Matthew's account, he says, how are we going to have enough for them to have their fill? And what they were saying in that moment was something a little bit different. That same word that's translated in different versions and different accounts of supply and enough and fill actually has its origins in a word that refers to, prior to this event, the word referred to the feeding or fattening of an animal. That was where the origin of this word comes from. And over time, it began to be applied to humans to signify being satisfied with food in abundance. And you say, well, isn't that kind of you know, take a, a phrase applied to animals and apply it to, to us? Well, has anyone ever, ever, here ever been accused of picking out? This is what they were saying is, where are we going to find enough for these people to have a feast? Maybe in that moment they recognized that Jesus didn't want to just give them a takeout bag in hopes that they got home and could then uh, fill up their bellies. He was, they knew Jesus wanted to fill them up wanted to satisfy them. Think about, think about stuffing yourself or a Thanksgiving meal that's spread out on the table with basketfuls of leftovers. They recognized, perhaps, in that moment that that's what Jesus wanted to do. How are we going to find enough not just to feed them, but to fill them? And so we perhaps give them some credit in that moment. We work really hard to take care of our needs, and we should. We're, we're responsible people. We get that. But do we trust him? Or do we at times worry about our needs being met? 
Do we trust him or do we worry? And, and I'm, I'm taken back to verses like John 10, 10, where he says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Or Mark 6, 30, where he says, and if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that they are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Imagine God's unlimited resources. And it's not a prosperity message. I'm not here to say that God wants to give you an abundance in everything, financially or, or, or otherwise. But it's about standing in faith that God's resources are going to take care of it. It's a faith message. We were, we were blessed last Wednesday in our, in our Chi Alpha service. A student approached me and said, I need to share my testimony. And so we created space. We said, okay, we're going to set aside this service, and you can testify about what God has done in your life over the years that you've been at Chi Alpha. And as he began to share his story, and there was some humor, and there was some people who could identify, I recognize that, stories of, of when is the financial aid going to come in? Is financial aid even available? Are scholarships out there? I need to find work. I can't work. All these different situations. And in the, in, in as he told the story of ups and downs, it also included some personal tragedy in his life. And, and he began to share that in these moments, he didn't know what, was God, what God was going to do, but time after time after time, God met him in the last minute, the 11th hour. And that was a tremendous testimony, but there was something that he said at the very end that caught me. And I said, this is perhaps even more significant Because as he went into this last trial, this last wondering where the money was going to come from, a family member said, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to do the same thing we did every time. We're going to pray and we're going to believe. And I think the real miracle wasn't just that God met him in all of those needs, but he created in this student a faith that when these trials come, I'm just going to stand on God. And that's, I think that's really where God wants to get us. And he, he said, the reward, whether it's in this lifetime or the next, and he's, there was wisdom in that because the blessing doesn't always come in this world. But as we walk in faith and we demonstrate that, we become a witness to those around us, trusting in him to meet all of our needs. Jesus' mother, Mary, demonstrated that confidence in another instance. Jesus' first miracle at the wedding where they, they ran out of the wine. And Jesus was approached, what are you going to do? And he's like, it's, it's not my time. But Mary demonstrated great confidence and said, whatever he says, do it, because that'll take care of the situation. And that's the challenge for me when I think about my needs. Whatever God's telling me to do in the midst of my needs, if he's telling me to pray, go do it. If he's telling me to fast, go do it. I'm out of money, but he's telling me to give, go do it. Because God's going to supply the needs. It's a step of faith. Philippians 4.19, and the same God who takes care of me, Paul is saying, will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. He's got tremendous resources. So how does does this challenge me when I think about my needs? Well, first of all, I need to realize and separate the difference between needs and wants. He will supply all of my needs. I realize that at times I do have a sense of fear when it comes to serious needs and what is God going to do? And I have to remember that fear is not faith. Fear is not walking in God's love because his word tells us that perfect love casts out all that fear. And if I'm doing that, I'm not recognizing the God that I serve and his amazing resources. 
You know, there was, there was an instance uh, when I was in the service, and we were in a tremendous storm out at sea. Tremendous storm. And, and in that moment, and I, I, I don't know if I've shared this aspect of this story, but someone asked me, were you afraid when your ship was in a typhoon? Were you afraid? And as I look back on it, I said, no, I, I really wasn't. But what was it that, that caused me to not have fear in that moment? Well, part of my duties kept me on the bridge, and on the bridge in that situation, the captain was up there a lot, and I recognized, as I'm watching the captain on the other side of the bridge, he doesn't fear the storm. He knows the ship. He knows what's going on. He, he has wisdom that I don't have, and the captain isn't freaking out, so if he's not freaking out, why should I freak out? God isn't freaking out about our situation. He's not saying, oh, oh, oh they have some needs. What am I going to do this time? He has tremendous confidence and tremendous resources, and we need to trust him that he's going to take care of all of our needs. Do I have the faith to put all my needs in God's hands? One more that I was challenged with as I went through this account. And this one gets real personal. But do I trust God to put all of my possessions in God's hands? Do I trust God enough to put all of my possessions in his hands? In verse 5, Jesus asks the disciples, how much bread do you have? I want to take you back to the feeding of the 5,000 for a moment. Jesus asks the same question, how much food do you have? If you remember, Pastor pointed out that in John's gospel account of the feeding of the 5,000, it was a small boy who came forward with the five small loaves and the fish. And the disciples took that and went back to Jesus and said, this is what we have. It wasn't what they had. It's what the small boy had. They were giving away the little boy's lunch in that moment. It's sort of like the offering plate is going around and you get to take your neighbor's wallet and decide how much to put in. Would that be a little bit easier than reaching into your own wallet? It's real easy to give away somebody else's resources. It's a little bit different when you're giving away your own resources. So in the feeding of the 5,000, it was the young boy's lunch who they brought to Jesus. This is a little bit different. If you remember at the beginning of this account, Jesus said they've run out of food. I don't know how long ago they ran out of food. I don't know how hungry they are, but we, we see that. He says they're out of food. And so he asks the disciples again, what do you have? At this time, I wonder if any food that was brought to Jesus in this instance was the disciples. Was this their emergency rations? Was this what they were keeping back? This was, this was under that cushion in the back of the boat that we didn't tell anybody about. It's not giving away somebody else's resources, somebody else's possessions. They have to give away perhaps their own in this instance. And I'm reminded about Romans chapter 12 that talks about being living sacrifices. All of my possessions, even my life. All of those things are his and in his hands. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 2 and 2 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul uses the illustration of being poured out as a drink offering. And it would be as if I, if I took a cup and I took the lid off and I dumped it all out. There's nothing left in that moment. Completely trusting. Paul gave it all away. I've got nothing left. And that's a very different concept than, uh, oh, well, I'll just take this out of the church's funds and give it. 
You know, are you willing to pull out your own credit card and pay for somebody's meal or, or buy their gas or meet their needs? It's a different concept. Pastor Steve made this comment uh, in talking about the feeding of the 5,000. He says that our never enough, because we have very limited resources, our never enough plus God is more than enough. And that's true. God could do it all on his own. He has the resources. He has the ability. But he chooses to work through us, the church. And that requires something from us. If he's going to do it through us, it requires something from us. And I'm drawn to the account in the early church, Acts chapter 4. The church is just getting started and things are just beginning to roll and miracles have happened and the, the Holy Spirit has come and there's tremendous growth. And we read this account in Acts chapter 4 beginning in verse 32. It says, All the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was a man, for instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. This is what it looked like in the early church. And it could look very differently today. Please don't walk away here and assume that, that I was telling you to go sell everything and, and give it away. That's what happened in, in the early church. But the principle is still the same. It's all God's anyway. It's all God's anyway. Do I trust him with all of my possessions. And we think about that, this instance in Acts and we're reminded that as the church was focused on God in an upward way, inwardly they were operating in a united fashion. Outwardly they were testifying. In all this trusting their possessions fully on God, the church moved purposefully forward. Does that sound remotely familiar to anything that you've heard here before? It's a, it's, a, it's a reality. Do we have to do it? Do we have to give away all of our possessions? It doesn't say in this instance that they were told they had to do it. Did they choose to do it? Some of them did. Either part of their possessions or all of their possessions, whatever God called them to do. Did it propel the church forward, trusting God in this way? Yes, it did. And this challenges me to place my possessions in God's hands. And I ask the question, are there things that I place great priority on even before God that I would allow to interfere with my walk? Is there anything I have in my life? God, reveal if there's, if there's this thing that's between you and me, take it out of my life. I want to surrender it all to you. And, and while we may not all be called to sell our possessions, is there something I need to address in my own life? Jesus did challenge a young man to do that, to sell everything he had and go give it to the poor and follow him. What is God challenging us with in regard to our possessions? What is it out there that could be interfering with our walk? And so we're, we come to the point where we ask, how are we going to respond to this message in the gospel this morning? 
And I think there are some, some questions we can ask ourselves. I recognize that the best relationships in my life are born out of a time investment. So I ask myself, have I been stingy with my time? Have I been stingy with my time in regards to Jesus, in regard to the Word, and in, in regard to serving? The amount of time may be different from person to person, but what is God challenging me to? What is God challenging you to? Regarding my needs, Jesus taught us how to pray, asking for our daily provision to be met, our daily bread. And even in times of want or lack, we shouldn't deny the situation, but in faith we need to walk in confidence. And regarding my possessions, my resources, is my heart tied to them in some way that it's inhibiting my my trust in God? Real questions to ask ourselves, and that's what the gospel does. It forces us to examine ourselves, and how is my life supposed to be transformed because of this? I'm going to invite you to stand this morning.